What is going on? Welcome to the MM Podcast, fortnightly philosophy and lifestyle podcast, helping you to live a more virtuous, more wise existence by exemplifying conversations, uh, conversations at the edge of what we know, prying into the meaning crisis, crises of faith, of alienation, of isolation. And this week is no different. On the podcast, I'm joined by Adam Lane Smith. Adam Lane Smith is a registered therapist and attachment specialist. He's also known as the Brometheus on TikTok and Twitter. And his TikTok account is huge. It has over 160,000 followers. He's also been seen on Modern Wisdom podcast and the Michaela Peterson podcast talking about this very important topic of attachment, giving and receiving love and the issues that we can face in that area. Um, I mean, who doesn't have relationship problems, especially in this complicated dating market? So uh, I really found this conversation with Adam very enlightening and we really pried into what it takes to have a healthy relationship, what it is, how you can get there, um, what are some red flags, warning signs if it's not good, things to avoid, things to do. So as always, the link to subscribe to Monk is in the description. That's where I send out podcasts and essays weekly to everybody via email. So you don't have to mess around with any social media sites, or third parties. Um, I'm also expanding the YouTube channel at the moment, which has now videos on stoicism, videos on overcoming addiction and self-destruction, videos on psychology, and there's a lot more coming soon. So definitely subscribe to there, which is also going to be in the description. So without further ado, here's the podcast conversation with me and Adam. Boom. So welcome to the podcast, Adam Lane Smith, aka Attachment Adam. It's an honor to have you here, sir. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to doing this one with you. So I'm glad to be here. Awesome, man. And I suppose for people that are joining us, like how we, I know you're a registered therapist. Obviously, you're mainly an attachment specialist now. How would you describe what you do um, and the service that you offer to people? Yeah, so I worked for years as a licensed psychotherapist. Now I specialize in attachment. I'm an attachment specialist. That means I coach people through healing their relationships, especially in dating and marriage. I work with people on repairing those anxieties and insecurities they've had since childhood. It is all about attachment. And attachment is the way that we connect to other people to give and receive love. So learning to connect and give and receive love in all your relationships. That's what I teach. Fantastic. Um, it, obviously, as I was saying beforehand, like such an important topic for the relationship space at the moment is uh, slightly complicated. I assume you have kind of a lot of business um, in terms of this area. It's the dating pool and, and just relationships and life in general has got more and more complicated over the last hundred years. And yeah, I, unfortunately, I don't see attachment getting better in our culture, but maybe we can change that. Maybe we can mm. turn that around. Mm. And it's an interesting kind of segue in because there was something I want to ask you about, which is kind of intergenerational attachment problems. I mean, is that the way that this works? It seems to be that you're getting it from parents who got it from their parents and you have this kind of lineage thing. I wonder, could you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. That is exactly how this game goes. A child is born 
and instantly begins learning in their world of if people will care for them and nurture them and act with them cooperatively and give them respect and care for their dignity as a human being, or if people are going to neglect them, hurt them, uh, just drop them, not talk to them, not bother to meet their needs, or if people will act upon them when we're like an object. Are they going to be treated like a person or like an object in their life? And this starts from birth when the baby cries and tries to get fed. And maybe if a baby goes into a NICU over here in America, we call it the, the NICU where if the baby is really hurt or sick, something is wrong, they get put in the, in the incubator kind of system. It's not an incubator, but they get put in there for two, three weeks. And it's a, it's a sterile environment where there is not that human warmth, that connection. So they cry, they don't get picked up, they don't get nurtured. You can try to hold them a little bit, but the baby learns nobody's going to care for me. If we get put over here in America... We don't have much leave for parents, so a baby might go into daycare at four or six weeks old mm. and be with strangers. And the baby learns, you know, mom is leaving me with strangers every day. What is happening? And maybe the stranger is good and helpful. Maybe the stranger is not. But then that primary caregiver may change. And the baby learns that primary caregivers can go away and abuse, neglect. Mom and dad are depressed. Mom and dad just aren't around. Dad is gone. Whatever it may be, the little brain learns, all of this is my fault. Something about me is causing people to treat me this way. Either I am worthless on the inside and they all see it, and I'm a bad kid, so I have to earn approval from people by being perfect and, and getting everything right and making them happy, or I have to protect myself from other people by acting upon them and making them do the things that I need to get my needs met. And that, it definitely comes down from generational attachment because if your parents don't know what to do, how to give you that love and nurturing and, and show you that you are a warm, loving, dignified human being and, and work cooperatively with you while they're raising you, they might not do the, do the bad things that would definitely harm you, but they may miss the good things that will give you that reassurance. So you may be trapped in generational attachment issues. Maybe it's been five generations of bad or difficult parents who traced down to your parents who tried not to do bad, but just didn't know how to do good. And now here you are anxious and you don't know why. Yeah, man. And it's an interesting, there's kind of a dilemma there as well in terms of like the parental kind of, because if, if that holds up, the parents are kind of victims of that as well. I, I feel like in our culture, maybe it's Freudian psychology or something. There's been a big emphasis on like the parents are to blame always. And there's kind of an interesting double two-way street there a little bit that's like okay you know this is it's kind of falling down or something um so yeah i wonder is that something then that you'd um are people dealing specifically with those issues with the parental issues um or is it just because it's showing up in their relationship you know are you looking at it as the past or the present for these problems that really, when people come to me, they're adults. Sometimes they're 20, 30, 40. I've even worked with people in their 70s who come to me and say, I want to fix my relationships now. And all we do is we trace back where did the broken attachment come from? Because it's a foundational belief that gets rooted into somebody's head. You know, water is wet, gravity pulls things down, and I am an unlovable piece of crap that no one will ever care for. So we don't have to go back and repair that. You don't lay on the couch for six weeks and crying about your parents. You don't do that. It is just they need to understand in the first session, usually, where it came from, where they got skewed sideways. And then from there, we say, okay, here is what will change that attachment and start healing that in your relationships now. You need to experience the opposite and comprehend the opposite, and you need to perceive that you are actually loved, and that will change the way your brain functions. 
And when they start doing that and following those steps, I, I've got steps laid out. I've got an attachment boot camp course on my website, adamlanesmith.com. It, it shows you all the steps to do this. And when you do that correctly, when you, when you solve those steps, it starts healing them today. It's not so much about healing the past. It's healing your current relationships and experience the change, experiencing that change for yourself. Yeah. And how much do you rate the kind of system of attachment? I know like a little bit about Bowlby's anxious, secure, avoidant. Do you think that that's still relevant or do you have a different way of doing it? Yes, absolutely. So I, I stick to those mains. There's all kinds of broken down charts you can see from people who mm. say, oh, you know, it was this and this and this kind of avoidant, this kind of, I say there's, there's four types. They're secure and that's good that's the good love like i'm cared for i'm nurtured i'll be taken care of i can trust people to act in good faith and then there's three insecure types that break down into avoidant which is i can't trust anybody else so i have to stay safe by pulling away from people but also pushing their buttons to get my own needs met not like full-on sociopath i'm going to control people and hurt them but i got to stay away from people and i i'm going to tell them what they want to hear but that's for my sake to kind of stay back and stay safe there's an anxious style of i am worthless no one can ever love me so i have to earn approval from people and this can grow into codependence of I need to earn approval from people and do nice things for people. So I got to find people who have problems and I need to be needed so that they can never abandon me. That's the terror of abandonment. And then number three is called disorganized, which now is called anxious slash avoidant. It's a combo of being so anxious and worried all the time that you start becoming avoidant, where you start taking control of other people because that's the only way you know how to stay safe. You've been hurt so many times in your anxiety that all you can do is control other people to try to protect yourself. Those are the four main types of attachment. And, and people break them down into smaller chunks from there. And, and maybe that's helpful, maybe it's not. But at its core, it is learning to open up to other people and trust them and trust yourself to work in good faith and then experiencing those relationships for yourself that your brain is meant to be feeling it's so interesting so much of your advice that i've seen i know those categories might be useful for people to kind of figure out if they're hopefully not self-diagnosing but um that might kind of give an indication but a lot of your work it seems to come down so much to just uh, to what you were saying like is honest conversation like asking for your needs and being able to put yourself out there and be vulnerable without having to play these kind of games that are kind of submerged you know um and it's interesting i suppose i've I'm nodding along silently as if I don't have these issues myself and haven't been facing them for such a long time. Um, so I understand that fear of like, voicing your needs and not kind of, I suppose, not putting yourself out there. Um, and how much is that? The, is that the step for avoidant, for anxious? You know, is that really what it comes down to for people? It, it all comes down to learning to open up and cooperate with other human beings. I call it acting with versus acting upon. That's really the heart and soul of fixing your attachment. Mm -hmm. So from an anxious perspective, the person who thinks they are worthless, it is learning to open up and connect to other people despite the fear that if they do, other people will see that they are worthless and a fraud and will abandon them and, and reject them. It's, it's overcoming something to reach the same goal. The avoidant person has to overcome the fear that other people are not to be trusted. So they have to overcome that, that belief that if they open up, it will be used against them and they will be hurt for it or controlled by it. Because their view is that other people are going to act upon them, not necessarily abandon them, but use it as leverage against them. And that's what they have to overcome is the fear of being 
controlled and hurt in that way. But it's, it's the same outcome of learning to cooperate with other people, that other people will act in good faith and learning those experiences so that you can work with them. That's, that's the heart of attachment. When you have good attachment, you know that other people will act in good faith and that you can talk to them and hear them out without having to jump ahead and shape the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, so much about trust and kind of being uh, open to relationships with other people, um, which is, I suppose, difficult nowadays. There seems to be such a commerce of uh, different groups almost. Um, I, I know uh, like from the memes and stuff on Instagram of, I don't know if you've ever heard of Hoodville and this kind of like manosphere. Like I, I do like, I mean, I understand why that's present in a sense, but then again, there's this kind of, you know, going to the opposite pole of one end and the other one goes, is there kind of, do you think there's almost like a feud going on or something like, because individuals, I can't see how people can be healthy in the mainstream kind of way things are going. Like you almost have to pull away from it or something. We, we, we live in, especially here in the Western culture, we, we live in 100 years of broken attachment that has got worse and worse and worse over the last hundred years. So we stop and say, open up, connect to other people, trust them, believe that they act in good faith and cooperate with them. Make yourself vulnerable to them and it will go great and you will feel better. And that is the opposite messaging we receive from our friends, our family, the media, the everybody. Instead, we are all factioning off into tribal groups who don't even trust each other, but at least we are unified against other enemies that we don't like that we could point at and say, oh, those people. And then we can look at that and say, oh, you know, there's something different about us. So at least we can band together and you people won't abandon me because I at least have worth in some way to our group. And, and we are built in to say, here is the worth that I have and here's why you can't abandon or hurt me. And then we, we do everything we can to earn approval and make people like us to try to insulate ourselves from that fear. And that's, that is so much of our culture. And it has got so much worse over the last century that we, we can't really imagine a healthier system. When we look back here in the United States, when I try to explain like, this is love, this is care. This is what real love is. Real love is two people mutually fulfilling each other's needs on both sides who are equally focused on making sure both sides get their needs met. Not being a martyr for the other person or being a doormat for them, but also not aggressively taking from the other person to meet your own need. It's mutual fulfillment in good faith. That's what love is. And when I say that, people say, oh, well, that's like 1940s television <laughs> that people just want. You know, it's, it, it is. That's as far back as we have to go to be able to picture what healthy yeah. must look like. And that is why we are where we are, as, as political spectrums, as sub-political groups, the manosphere versus the feminists, and, and everybody mad at each other, and everyone terrified of each other, and everyone's so sure that everyone else is out there to rob them and take from them, and that no one could ever act in good faith, and so we can't cooperate. That's, that's a massive reason why we are where we are. It's incredible, man. The the cynicism around, even as you were saying about love there, like I was imagining kind of the response to that at times, which is this suspicion almost that it's like somebody's selling something or you're like, there's this kind of, you know, there's some sort of pitch or some sort of angle. Like it, it almost seems like that to talk about trust and love and connection with people is like naive or something. It It's, it's so fallen. The, the internet's just so cynical. It's like, uh, it's really disturbing, I think, but um, it reminded me, I, 
I posted a, an Iris Murdoch quote during the week, which is that uh, love is the extremely disturbing realization that something other than yourself is real. And, and that is really... so brutally true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just kind of going beyond the egocentrism. I mean, how, how much is for attachment issues? Is it being wrapped up with this story that you're telling yourself? Because I think I kind of fall into the avoidant camp probably more, but I, oh, what I started to do was all, pay attention is, to the stories. Hmm, sorry, go ahead. It is all a story that we are telling ourselves. It is a story we are telling ourselves based on a fundamental belief about other human beings, which we then project onto everybody we meet now. It is a misunderstanding and a disconnect between a child and their parents that then grows up into a massive projection on every human being you'll ever meet until you challenge that assumption. That's why I go on these podcasts. That's why I do my live streams on my TikTok channel. Um, it's, it's why this is so important to get the word out because people just struggle to believe it's real, right? When you, when you hear like, here's Adam Lane Smith coming in talking about love and connection and be open, trust people and, and really listen and cooperate. People will act in good faith. It sounds like I'm pitching a cult. It sounds like I am telling you to come down to my, my, my compound in Colombia and give me all of your money. And that's what it sounds like when I teach people about love and attack. And I'm aware of that because that, that is the cynicism, like you said, that so many people have built into their hearts of mm. love is not real. Love can't work. And when somebody finally opens up and they say they come to, you know, five of my TikTok live events, I'm at attachment bro over there. Friendly name. Yep. Um, yep. When they come to five of my TikTok lives and they're seeing people come in and talking about it, and it's not just me as a talking head on the screen saying, guys, attachment's real and here's what it is. But then they see people in the group, in the chat saying like, it's amazing. I fixed it. I read this guy's book and it sounded weird at first, but this is amazing and I'm trying it and it's mm -hmm. fixing it. And they're seeing other people around them fix it and they start to believe. And that's step zero. You must even start mm -hmm. to believe that attachment is possible and that it can be changed. And then everything flows from that because then it opens the door that maybe, maybe the stories you tell yourself in your head about why you can never connect to people and never be open. Maybe they're not completely true. Maybe there's another alternative. Yeah, man, that's a very empowering message. It was something I kind of learned from CBT and from studying stoicism, like a big, big part of that is, you know, separating the meaning and the event, the kind of what, the story that you're projecting onto it and having that kind of like stepping back and going, well, you know, how much evidence do I have for this? Does everybody hate me or am I just kind of like, you know, blowing out of proportion? What actually happened? Um, and that's really empowering, I think, for people that are kind of stuck in these loops, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. When you realize that it may not be true, then you start maybe thinking about alternatives. And then when you do the same thing you've always done, it starts kind of bothering you. And every time you make those little pieces that you normally wouldn't have questioned, you start thinking and then maybe you start testing and then maybe you start experiencing something just a little bit different. And once you have that, your brain is built for it. Our brains are built for healthy attachment. That's why we have so much emotional and psychological and social pain going on is our brains aren't meant to have broken attachment. They're not meant to live in a system that is this cynical and this detached. We are meant to live very connected in good faith and love with each other. That's, that's what we're built for. And so when we experience it, it floods your brain and people come back to me the first time they have a good conversation with someone and they choose to open up and they come back to me just like, 
stunned and say, what is this? Why does it feel like this? How could, how could it be? How could I be this happy? Does this go away? What is And they just like freak out because the euphoria of experiencing what your brain is supposed to experience every day is overwhelming to them. The difference is it's like night and day when you experience good mm-hmm. attachment. And that's why people can't go back. Once they learn about attachment, they experience it once, they can never go back because they, they don't want to live that way anymore. And very true. And it, do you think people with attachment issues gather together? I mean, is it so I know I'd heard you speak about it before, kind of that there's people who with secure attachments tend to hang out with people with secure attachments, people with other problems. I, I've seen some research on people with mental health problems, pairing up with people with mental health problems more than vice versa. I don't know why, but um, yeah. is that a thing? So might you have to separate yourself from other people as well, like in an addiction or something? I mean, do you think that's a part of the process? Yeah, when you yeah when you have when you have broken attachment, you have really poor boundaries, and you have red flag behaviors in yourself that healthy people will detect that are a little unsettling to healthy people. So healthy people will select out of your life, but you also will be uncomfortable with them because you won't know the buttons to push to get their approval or to make them happy because they aren't easily pushable people. So you will get away from them, and they might seem boring. They might seem intimidating. They might just seem really bland. You don't know what's going on with them. And so people with broken attachment will select into groups of other people with broken attachment and they cluster together and then they push each other's buttons and they play the game, especially anxious people will chase avoidant people to get approval without ever getting too close to be found out for who they are. And it's this, this ugly circle of, I believe this is real. I've never seen different. Healthy people avoid me. All my relationships have been bad. If there was better out there, I would have seen it by now. And it becomes this self-bias, self-selecting system that just reconfirms the the faulty beliefs from your childhood. And meanwhile, healthy people are out there, yeah, connecting to healthy people. They live fairly quiet lives because they don't feel the need to crow about it. They're fulfilled in their relationships. So we don't hear a lot about those people who are living nice, quiet, comfortable, happy, secure lives. We just don't hear much about them. Meanwhile, in the news, the news cycle is dominated by celebrities and people with broken attachment making really bad decisions in their lives based on these faulty assumptions and then the pain that it drives them into. And that reconfirms for us that attachment must, it's just, it's it's impossible. That's why people get stuck. And that's why people stay stuck in cycles where they, they don't connect to healthy people. Yeah, it seems like you almost like, it's, it's like giving up a drug or something. Like I remember I interviewed a, Dr. Anna Lemke, I don't know if you know her, she's a dopamine specialist. Um, and she talked about something with all addicts that she dealt with that was common to them was like, they all wanted a super normal life. They weren't content with ordinary life. Uh, there was no, you know, the boredom was, which is kind of inherent in a reasonably disciplined, organized life. Um, that they, yeah. It was always trying to escape that. Is that something in a relationship, you know, that... um. It's not going to be the sparks and fireworks of the toxic love affair, I suppose. Do you think that's reasonable? Well, when you think think about it this way, um, we are meant to get a number of healthy brain chemicals with secure attachment. Number one is vasopressin, which comes from solving problems cooperatively with other people. If you don't believe you can work and cooperate with other people, all of your problems are solved by pushing buttons. So you don't get much vasopressin with other people because you can't even open up about what the problems are. If you don't have that, you also a lot of times don't have much oxytocin bonding. Oxytocin is warmth and care and nurturing, and it's, it's, it's 
meant to happen when we are in an absence of stress. So we are careful with, with each other. We are nurturing. We are warm, good physical contact, open conversation, and acceptance. If you didn't get much of that as a child, your brain shifts away from it and doesn't understand it. So it becomes fearful of oxytocin. If you don't have much oxytocin, you also won't get much GABA release in your brain. And GABA is meant, it is designed that when you have a stress event, cortisol floods your system, it suppresses the anxiety and depression symptoms you're going to feel and lessens that stress event on your system. So it becomes, you're more resilient. And when you don't get all of these things and connect other people, you don't get much serotonin in your system, which comes from a number of things, but also in your relationships, good conversation, openness, bonding, connectedness, physical contact, all those good pieces that we need. So when you are missing a huge portion of your brain chemistry like that, and you're deficient in a number of neurotransmitters and hormones, all you have left for the most part is dopamine, 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 dopamine. So you are binging dopamine to try to feel better all the time. And that's the whole of your life, which is why so many people with attachment issues fall into addiction because they're pounding that button to just feel better, to manage their pain, to manage their fear for escapism. That's, that's the cycle of attachment to addiction. And when you fix your addiction, when you fix your attachment, it floods you with those good chemicals that you need. So then you can fight off, uh, fight off addictions. You can fight off temptations. You can fight off relapses because you don't need those things anymore. They're not fulfilling your endless dopamine craving and the need for a, a fun, exciting, extraordinary life because regular life does fulfill you. Then you just do activities with the people you love and you get a flood of good brain chemicals and it feels great. It feels like an extraordinary life lived with an ordinary manner. That's, that's healthy attachment. And that's what we're all supposed to have. That is so interesting, man. Dopamine is probably one of the topics I talk about most on this podcast, which everybody's pretty sick of listening to because uh, the research I'm doing on social media, obviously that type of technology acting on dopamine is pretty much the central mechanism of how it keeps people engaged. Um, so yeah. it's interesting that it also has this relational kind of quality. But I guess it's all kind of goal-directed or pursuit activity. So I wonder, I mean, in a relationship, they say like that the... <laughs> The first bit's kind of dopamine, and then you get over the initial kind of thrill of it, and then you have a, a proper relationship. I don't know if that's just a myth, but um, is it something that people get stuck on this kind of the initial high, I suppose? Because I see a lot of people these days, and it's kind of like relationships are interchangeable. It's like once it gets boring, you just switch for another one. You're like, oh, yeah, it's done. and I'll just get rid of it. And everybody's as good as everybody else, and it's all replaceable. Well. And you're kind of like when you never yeah. really attach to one person, then it's all just mm. feelings. This is this is why cheating happens in relationships, because when you have broken attachment, everybody is just a person that you have to push their buttons so that they won't abandon you by doing nice things for approval or so that they won't attach or won't attack you or get too close or try to connect to you or, or do wrong things. The, the avoidance run away and the, the the anxious chase, but no one wants really to be caught or to catch. When you have that, your whole life is a system, like you said, with the, with the love quote, your whole life is a system of I'm the only person on earth that I can rely on and I have to endlessly push buttons on other people and act upon them. So when you have that, all that relationships are is the feelings. It's not a deep, intimate connection with another human being. It's you connected to an object that makes you have feelings or an object that scares you so you have to make the object happy. That's what a relationship is. So yeah, you just swap one out for another. And what's the difference? It's just another sure. person you got to push buttons on. That's, that's what relationships are when you chase them that way. So yes, for the first 
seven to 12 months, a lot of relationships are fake because people don't want to talk about goals. They don't want to talk about principles. They don't want to talk about the things that are fundamental to them. They don't want to talk about the things they want to accomplish as a couple. They don't want to talk about those things because they think people will just run away and won't want anything to do with them. And they'll be exposed as a fraud, whatever it might be. So they binge them on dopamine. Avoidant people do something called love bombing, where they saturate you with dopamine and oxytocin in the beginning of the relationship with care and nurturing and gifts and compliments and all kinds of things. You saturate the people at the beginning. And then the anxious person who's got very little of that through their life becomes chemically addicted to that one person and can't give them up, which then when the avoidant person pulls back and withdraws, the anxious person will chase them and blame themselves for the mistakes and will keep chasing and chasing and chasing. And that cycle is exactly what so many people see of these shallow, empty relationships that are all feelings and they are all replaceable. And that's, that's broken attachment. That's what that is. Wow. Um, the, it's a slightly terrifying story, isn't it? But the, um, I, I've, I mean, I've done that. I, I've done that cycle in relationships. I, I have gone through that myself and seen that happen. And then in this relationship that I've been with my girlfriend now for nearly three years, and it was something that I set out from the start with the intention of saying that I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to say, you know, what I want and what I need. And I'm going to listen to what she wants and what she needs. And we actually did uh, this book here. I don't know if you've heard of this. Eight Dates by John Gottman. Oh, interesting. Yeah. John and Julie yeah. Gottman. Very interesting because mm -hmm. that kind of, it gives you eight dates essentially, whereby it gives you a question for each date and a theme like trust or commitment or play. And it, ha it makes you have conversations. Um, yes. Conversations that I would would have been scared to have before, but that you have to have or else you don't get it. You don't have a relationship. That's so much. When, <laughs> when people come into my coaching practice, that's what I do is I say, okay, here's how your first date should actually go. Here's how your second date should actually go. Here's how your third date should actually go. And they say, no, no, are you sure? Really? You should be talking about those things and, and asking those questions. So aren't people going to get run away from me? And I say, well, yeah, the unhealthy people who are afraid of commitment, afraid of love, afraid of bonding, and they're just there to push your buttons and get feelings from you. Yeah, they will run away. Guess what the healthy people will do? They will run towards you. They will commit to you. They will want this bonding to happen. So what trade do you want to make? People are like, well, okay, I'm going to try it. And then they go have the best first date of their life and the best second date and the best third date. And they get into a deep, loving, committed relationship like you did based on trust based on honesty, based on cooperation, that's healthy attachment. You're doing great. Yeah, man. And there's just a risk there, I suppose. That's kind of an interesting jumping off point. That's a kind of like a courage that it takes to even just to admit that certain things are true or that you need certain things that you want a certain kind of life. Um, and to be honest with yourself to do it, it's, it's really difficult was what I learned. Um, I always thought relationships were supposed to be kind of like, party or something um so it was a tough kind of learning experience to go you know there has to be work involved in this you know you have to put yourself in the you know put yourself on the line for the relationship um is that something exactly. you see a lot That's, with people when i work oh absolutely it's it's this should be feelings and if it's not good feelings then there's something wrong and maybe we should just duck out of the relationship because we can't fix it. We can't collaborate. All I can do is push buttons. I can make the other person happy or I can maybe punish them for doing their own thing, convince them it's their fault. We just need to push the other person's buttons enough to get to a better place in this relationship. And that's 
it's just not how that game goes. It's not what a relationship. That's not a relationship. That's that's you playing a video game. That's what that is. Yeah. So it is when when I work with uh, when, when I coach men or women on their first dates, and I say, go in and say, hey, you know what? Just so we're on the same page, you know, I am looking for a long term committed relationship down the line. We don't have to get married today, but that is what I'm looking for down the line. So as we move forward. If that's your place and that's that's what you want to do, cool. Let's do that. And let's talk about that with our head toward a committed relationship. If it's not, totally cool. Let's high five. Let's finish our dinner. We'll enjoy it. We will go separate ways. No harm, no foul. And men and women both tell me, no, you know, men or women don't want that. They won't want me. They'll reject me. And I say, well, what would you like? If, if someone came into the table and told you that, what would you say? Oh, I'd love that. Oh, well, give it a try. Just give it one try. And they do. And it's like, all right, Adam, that was the best day of my life. When you are open and honest about your goals with the other person, then you can move toward those goals as a team. And you don't have to be trying to push buttons endlessly on people. You just remind them, hey, you know what? This is our goal. And how do we both get to that goal together so that we can enjoy it? Do you think you have to commit to a long-term relationship to have a healthy relationship? It was something I noticed was that if you don't talk about the future, if you don't have a future together, it's very hard to have a relationship now. There isn't like... If you're just like, maybe we'll be together for a month, maybe a year, we'll see how it goes. Things get very complicated. I don't think you have to get engaged on the first date uh, and say, we are going yep. to be together for 10 years at least. I don't think that. Mm. Um, I do think that it needs to be matched. If both people are only looking for a short-term relationship and they can both be op open about that and say, yeah, you know, I'm looking for more of a shorter-term relationship. And someone I can spend time with and, and this and this, but here's here's the end date for it for me. And the other person says, hey, I'm in the same boat. That's great. Then have that healthy conversation, have that goal together. But if one of you, at least one of you is saying, no, I'm looking, I'm, I am looking for a committed relationship and that's ultimately what I want, then you guys need to be on the same page. If one of you is like, eh, let's try it for a month. It's not like, again, you don't have to get engaged right away, but say, this is what I want. Then let's do our dating toward that and let's see how we work and let's do compatibility testing on various things over the next, you know, eight, 10, 12 months, whatever it might be, a year, two years, mm -hmm. test each other and see if we're truly compatible and how we work as a team. And then we'll know, but with an eye toward a commitment. Yeah. And being in the same boat, I suppose, figuring that out pretty early. What do you think of this whole polyamory and everybody having, you know, 10 girlfriends or whatever? <laughs> I think it's functional. Yeah, everyone asks me that. Time. Everyone asks me that. And and I say, <laughs> as long as everybody is open and on the surface with exactly what they want and exactly what they need so that nobody's needs are going unmet and nobody is just agreeing to things, hoping for approval or just agreeing to it because they don't believe they can get better. If, if that's a legitimate arrangement between fully, fully informed consenting adults, that's a whole different story than if people are in it trying to earn approval. They don't think they deserve better. They're in a committed relationship and their partner says, hey, you know what? I'm looking for more and they're too afraid to say no. It really depends how how everything is set up and what the adults in there are doing together. Mm. Yeah, well, that sounds very mature and reasonable. Um, I don't know if a lot of people do that when they go into it, but it sounds definitely if, if it'll work that way, I suppose. Um, and what, yeah, hmm. What do you think of, I know you're big about marriage and I, I feel like in our culture at the moment, there's obviously this fragmentation of traditional roles and traditional kind of archetypes, non-religious, secular society, where does marriage fit in? Um, how important do you think marriage is 
for healthy relationships? I think marriage is crucial depending on what the goal of your relationship is. I tell people your relationship should have a purpose. If you're going to commit to a relationship, then that relationship should fulfill some deeper purpose for the two of you. Otherwise, you are just in this relationship so that both of you can try to feel good until one of you dies. And that, that is a recipe for divorce, and it's a recipe for one person losing, and it's a recipe for both of you being miserable. What is the purpose? And in the, in the past history, the purpose of marriage was to raise children, and especially raise healthy children. And the research shows that if you have a child, the healthiest thing you can do for them is have a healthy marriage that the child is raised inside of. And, and attachment bears that out, and all the research bears that out. So if your purpose is to have a healthy marriage and healthy children and healthy grandchildren, healthy great-grandchildren, or if your purpose is to raise up a good company together or a nonprofit or to do, you know, volunteering, deep volunteer service work for people, then your marriage should really augment that. If, if you are not aiming for something like that as a couple, then what are you really committing to? And why would you need a marriage at that point? That, that is my question. But everybody, I think, should be aiming towards some kind of legacy which means you're going to find somebody else to share your life with who hopefully is looking to create that same legacy together. That's what, that's what marriage is really meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned divorce as well, which has obviously become a huge problem. I mean, my parents are divorced and it definitely didn't do any good to me, to be honest. I don't think living in that kind of environment where there's just an endless kind of fight going on that just never gets resolved and never really seems to go anywhere. Um, which is quite, you know, something I always said to myself that I didn't want to do or didn't want to kind of um, have that type of relationship, you know. Um, is is that right. is divorce a big factor in attachment issues that you see? I guess, yeah, because of the family, but... It's a circle. Mm. It's a circle. So a parental divorce, per, usually parents who have attachment issues, they can't agree on things because they're not able to cooperate and they don't understand what love is and they fight over the, the attention, they fight over the affection a lot of times moms and dads who both have attachment issues, moms change once they have the children and breastfeed the children. They get flooded with oxytocin for the first time in their life and they become very protective of the children, want to take care of them. And then they see anxiety forming in the child as the child doesn't get good attachment because the parents aren't doing the right things to give them that attachment. But then she'll blame dad and who has attachment issues, maybe avoidant. And dad becomes the enemy of the family and they triangulate against him and, and all kinds of things can happen which then leads to a broken family system where the kids don't get healthy attachment. And then the divorce happens and we get messages like, well, love just isn't enough and caring about each other isn't enough. You just can't work. Sometimes love just doesn't work. And sometimes family just explodes and dies. And, and that's the messaging that the children get. So then they go out into the world and they're like, I'm afraid of marriage. It's just going to die. It's just going to explode. It happened to me. I don't want it to happen. So then they're fearful of marriage. But what they're really fearful is, is of is, building relationships with people who have broken attachment, who can't work together and cooperate. That's really the problem. It's not marriage that's the issue. It's non-cooperation. Yeah, I mean, there's such an interest in that kind of this existential, almost like you're in a car that's going to just blow up at some point and you have no idea, and you have no control over it. Or you're in a car that you can fix if it breaks down and keep it going. And you have the kind of what Gottman talks about is that like, relationship disasters versus relationship masters and that it's a skill that really changed for me i was like wow i never actually thought about it that it was something you could practice you know that you could work on it yes um, and i'm sure lots of people feel that way yes that's exactly the game is when you build these skills and practice them 
it becomes more and more natural. It's not always so terrifying as it is the first time you try to be open and trusting people. It's, it's a skill that you must practice and refine, but your brain rewards you tremendously for the experience. So it helps a lot. Yeah, once it starts going the right way. And what for somebody that's listening, I suppose, that's maybe this is ringing a few bells and they're going, oh, God, um, this is, you know, that's my story or this is where I'm at. Um, how would you encourage them to kind of start off? Like, where should they begin? Oh, yeah. Well, step zero is believing that you can even change your attachment. And and I hopefully a few people in the audience are at least picking that up and thinking maybe it's possible. Step one, then, is learning to manage your fear enough that you can start having conversations with people and testing. And then you have to find people who are healthy enough, two or three people in your life, even just two, that you can open up to, that you could trust enough to have that conversation with and say, you know what, here's me. I have these things called attachment issues. And I push people's buttons. I'm afraid I'm going to get abandoned. I have a hard time trusting people. I'm always afraid I'm going to get hurt. And I'm not sure what to do. How to, You know, I, I'm, just, it's just, I'm just starting out. But is this okay? And can you and I build an honest relationship where we actually cooperate to solve problems and I can talk to you and be honest about how I feel and you can be honest with me and we'll help each other through life? Can we build that? And when you get that with two or three healthy people, your brain chemistry changes wildly to be able to open and connect with them. And I, I call that the I'm an anxious person speech. You have the I'm an anxious person speech and then your brain will convince you that it was a fluke and it's not going to work. And then as you choose to cooperate in those relationships. The other person can call you out gently if you choose not to, and they'll say, hey, you're doing that thing you told me about. And you go, oh, darn it, and then you have to do it. Mm. And as you overcome challenges with people, you start bonding to them and liking them. Vasopressin floods, oxytocin floods through you, serotonin, GABA, all starts to flood, and then you're not chasing dopamine as much. And then you start leaning into it more. And the more that you do it, the more you want to do it. And it starts healing your whole process. And it's scary. It's terrifying. There's numerous steps. There's complicating factors. That's why I coach it. When you, when you don't know what to do, you get a coach. But that is the process of learning to overcome that fear and experience it for yourself and then trust it and lean into it. And the experience is what changes you. Mm. That's step one there. The fear reminded me of something that John got. I mean, I you've definitely heard of his experiment where they wire people up in the fake BNB and they measure their arousal and he could predict divorced to like 94% or something based just on their physiological response to each other, that they were giving each other this stress response, that they were perceiving each other as predators, basically. So their body was panicking. They were in a heightened state of arousal. And um, how do you bring that state of arousal down? I mean, that's something I try to be aware of. I, I think of that state of arousal as almost like unsolved problems or something or chaos, like you're responding to the, yeah. the uncertainty. Um, and then you need to yes, kind of have the conversation threat. to it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how do you, how do you encourage people to deal with that, I suppose, at the, the outset? So your physical body can overcome a lot of your emotional agitation. So I teach people some techniques to use their physical body to stress your body to an extent where your brain says, okay, something's going on with my body. I got to turn down my emotions to manage whatever is happening here. And it floods you with, you know, lifting, lifting weights, for example, floods you with testosterone, it floods you with endorphins and all kinds of good brain chemicals, which then decreases the emotional agitation and makes you a little bit more resilient. And it makes you not as fearful that you're going to die. And it drains the emotional brain and restores logical functioning. And when this happens, you are able to lean into relationships and be a little more logical and overcome that existential dread of if I tell this person how I feel, I am going to die. 
That's, that's the fear that we are really dealing with. So when you use your physical body correctly, it builds that resilience and, and decreases your fear response tremendously. That's awesome, man. I was thinking of something there because the, something about this relationship was I'd quit drinking when I first got into this relationship for a long time and drinking gives me anxiety. So <laughs> drinking makes me uncomfortable. So it's very hard for me to have a normal relationship if I was drinking because I'd be more anxious and hence less likely to kind of do anxiety provoking things. Um, so that's like almost routine stuff and practices like not exercising, eating bad food, drinking too much could have a detrimental effect on your attachment as well. I mean, it could be part of the issue. Absolutely. Yes. When you're doing those things, you're messing up your brain chemistry, but you're also just spiking your anxiety. That's one big thing that I start teaching people is, you know, if, if you are feeling anxiety in a relationship about something you need to say to the person, you probably need to say that thing to the person because it's either going to wreck the relationship and then you'll be out of it and your anxiety goes down or and that's the bad outcome that almost never happens. Or you're going to get reassurance from the other person of, hey, dude, it's not like that. You know, it's, it's, I don't know where you're coming up with this thought, but it's actually like this. You know, I, I tell people, go to your partner. And if you're afraid all the time that they're going to break up with you and that you're going to on a hair trigger and, and a landmine is going to be somewhere and you're not sure, go to them and say, hey, you know what? I'm afraid all the time that we're going to break up, that I'm going to lose you. And, and it makes me really nervous. And I'm just agitated all the time about losing you. And it's terrible. And I don't want to live like this anymore. So I'm breaking up with, no, not like, no, you say, you go to them and <laughs> say, okay, <laughs> this is, this is what's happening. Can we talk about what would actually break up our relationship? And I've done this with my friends. I, I grew up with anxious attachment myself. I grew up with attachment issues. I fixed them. And by fixing them, then I said, okay, I'm going to go study psychology and learn what I just did and maybe help other people do it. I got my master's degree and then apprenticed as a psychotherapist and then worked as a psychotherapist for a while and then became an attachment specialist. And, and that's what I do now. But when you fix that, then you go to people like I did and like I still do. And I say, hey, you know what? Sometimes I worry a little bit about our relationship. I'm not sure where we're at. Can you tell me the things that would split us up so that we wouldn't be friends anymore? Can you tell me that? And let's talk about that so I don't have to worry about walking on eggshells. And hey, here's what would make me quit being your friend. And usually it's malicious behavior of you trying to viciously attack me or just endlessly lying, lying, lying to me in a way that hurts me. Like either one of those things, that, that's really it. And outside of that, you know, that's whatever. If you make a mistake, let's talk about it. Let's fix it. And this lowers the threshold of terror for both sides because then you're not walking on eggshells. You don't have a gun to your head and that decreases that fear. So is that something you could do? You at home with your girlfriend there, man, man. Is that something you could do? Yes. Ben, I've actually done that exact. I think I might have heard it from you previously, to be honest. The Setting the criteria of being like, look, if you do this and this, then that would end the relationship. Outside of that, it's cool. You know, you can give out to me and yeah. do whatever. And, you know, make me go walking up mountains and stuff. I'll do it. It's fine. But uh, yeah. the, we'll, we'll talk setting about that it. criteria. We'll cooperate. Exactly. I guess that's boundaries, I suppose. But there's something else that you're talking about there, which is not mind reading. That's something that I had a big problem with, um, which is thinking that I know what other people are thinking or what's going on with them or what the problem is without actually asking or saying, hey, what's up with this? I feel this way about yes. it. You know, am I just being weird or is something going on? Um, just guessing all the time. Mind reading in relationships is really trying to predict what an object is going to do if you hit a button. That's really what mind reading of other people is. You're not actually reading their mind. 
you are trying to predict what this object's going to do if you hit the wrong button. And is it going to jump sideways? Is it going to land on me? Is it going to crush me? Is it going to run away where I can't get to it anymore? What is this object going to do? That's mind reading. And that's why it sucks because you're, you're trying to predict what an object's going to do, but it's a human being. It's a human being with their own love and thoughts and feelings, and, and they will treat you differently because we don't really assume that objects are going to be morally and ethically good. We assume that objects are just going to attack us and hurt us and, and will simply be morally and ethically zero. So we assume automatically that everyone around us is a sociopath and is going to act like a sociopath toward us and hurt us without caring, either because we deserve it or because everyone's a sociopath. And when you open up to people, what you might be shocked to find is that most people are not sociopaths. Most people will say, well, I, I wouldn't treat you that way. Like, I, I, no, why would I hurt you that way? No, I would never do that to you. Here's, here's the problem. If we did this, this would be an issue, but then I would, I would yell at you and then we'd, we'd figure it out and then we'd solve it. And no, I, I would never just like you, you make one little mistake, you leave the milk out. And so I pack up my clothes in a suitcase and leave while you're sleeping and never speak to you again. No, <laughs> who would do that? But in our heads, we mind read to mm -hmm. such an extent. And then we, we project sociopathic behaviors on the other people. And then no wonder it destroys our relationships. It's incredible, man. And it's something that even outside of romantic relationships, it's almost a way of, I, I remember reading a, a quote and it was, make them tell you no. So for any opportunity, like a job interview, or, you know, if you're in my case, I'd be submitting things for writing and stuff like that, or like the scholarship that I got for college, like, don't ever assume no before it happens. Don't try and think, oh, I know what's going to happen next, yada, yada you're trying to read the future almost or something and actually go and see what happens actually go the go the extra mile even if you know maybe it will be a no but at least you went and saw it i think that applies to relationships so many as well. people mm. so many people sabotage their relationships in advance because they're anticipating such pain that will kill them so then they start sabotaging their relationships from their side without ever talking to the other person about what's happening and then the other person says what is this person doing they're destroying our relationship on purpose from their side. What is, are they malicious? Do they hate me? So then they start pulling away from you because they perceive you attacking them in some way and destroying the relationship. And they don't know what to say because now you're acting like an enemy. And the relationship got destroyed because you were so afraid of losing the other person that you sabotaged it without even talking to them. That is back to the mind reading, but yeah, that's, that is so much what happens. And it's awful learning to have people say no one of the best things you can do because that was one thing I had to learn with my friends when I healed my anxious attachment was, you know, I need to actually go to these people and say, Hey, you know what? I feel like I'm screwing up so much in our relationship that you're pretty much done with me. I, maybe I would be like, I can't imagine why you'd want to keep me around. Are, are we pretty much done? And are you getting frustrated with me? And most of the time, nine times out of 10, they'd go, what are you talking about? No, we're doing okay. <laughs> like there's been a couple setbacks, but it's not your fault. I don't blame you. I, I'm fine. I didn't even think we had a problem. I'm like, oh, <laughs> and if I had not stopped and said, you know, make them say no, if I had not stopped and asked, I, well, maybe I would have broken the relationship myself. And that, that is what has given me so much passion to teach attachment is the number of sabotaged missed opportunities that people face in their life. It breaks my heart thinking about it and seeing people destroy their life when frankly, they don't have to. It's incredible. You could be in such a better situation if you just have that pause almost just to be like, you know, am I just guessing here? Do I actually know what it is? Yeah. Like, do I need to just stop the noise in my head and actually be honest or tell the truth or, you know, say no, put up a fight, you know, bit of courage sometimes. Um, what is it? it you touched on something yeah. there. 
anything like just yeah have the conversation man so that's what i love about these podcasts as well is like you start in one place and you end in another and there's always this kind of it's a it's hard to put your finger on it but it it changes things in a way every time i have them you know you're not the same person you are when you start when you finish even in a small way and i I think those type of conversations in your relationship or in your life are kind of regenerative like they can they can fix things um and in a i suppose yeah in a constructive growth kind of way um and what is it Mm -hmm. in your experience that destroys relationships because you said it there like what are the things that you know you really can't do that if you're going to have a relationship. You know, you can't go yeah. down that road. Acting upon people. Acting upon people destroys their trust in you because you do not cooperate with them. And nobody likes to be acted upon in that way. Um, because eventually the acting upon becomes hurtful. It becomes the stick instead of the carrot. It is not always loving and gentle. Acting upon it must inevitably become angry, frustrated, driving, pushing, hurting and nobody likes that and nobody can trust somebody who does that because you will never cooperate with them and they will never cooperate with you and that destroys relationships over time and the only thing that can fix that is learning to act together cooperatively both sides learning to cooperate together in good faith and trusting the other person to have good faith and and work in good faith and trusting yourself to be able to rise up and meet those requirements as well that is that's the heart and soul of fixing your attachment right there is learning to do that. And that's that's why you can that's why how you can take the thing that's going to destroy your relationship and learn to turn it around by doing the opposite of what you would usually do, which is open up and trust and give them give them a chance to say no, give them a chance to say you, give them a chance to say, oh, hey, I don't want that. Give them a chance to say no, you know, you're not for me. Give them a chance to say, no, you know what, you're right. We shouldn't be together. It, you're giving them a chance. And when you choose to give the other person a chance to act instead of to be acted upon, people love that. And people reward that. And people want to be around that. People value that. When you give people the space to act and trust them to act with good faith, that heals your relationships. It's kind of like giving people their free will or almost granting that they have, again, that Iris Murdoch quote that's like that other people are real. Like you're saying, you know, I, I'm you're a real person. I can say these things and whatever happens is going to happen because, you know, that'll be your choice as a real person. Like it's not this kind of, I can't control what's going to come next, like an object. It's the respect um, for it's the respect for the dignity of a human being, instead mm-hmm. of succumbing to your fear and robbing them of the dignity of a human being. Wow, steep stuff, man. I wonder, did did you feel that way about it when you first started teaching people? Oh, because it, was it touched you. Overwhelming. And then- when I, when I learned about attachment and I started fixing my own attachment, it was like, what is this? I need to figure what, has somebody else figured this out? And then studying through psychology textbooks and going to grad school and getting my master's degree and then apprenticing. And they didn't, when I first touched attachment the first few times, I was like, wait a minute, what is this? And then they would tell me, you know, in grad school here in America, at least they really focus on attachment is not important to understand because it's mostly just for little kids because those are the only diagnoses that would deal with attachment. So don't worry about attachment if you're not working with little baby kids. And so I was like, oh, okay, I guess. And well, what else do we work on? So when I went back to it, I started looking at, well, you know, some of these diagnoses, you can only diagnose as a little child, but some of these these reactive attachment disorder and things like this, this, this kind of fits what this human being is doing. And, he, and they're like 30, 40. And, and I had a wonderful supervisor who at the time was telling me like, well, you don't have to diagnose them with it, but maybe you should really think about that. Where Chase that feeling down. 
So I started learning about attachment and reading, you know, when you try to study attachment, it's, it's you know, 500 page textbooks with technical jargon and it's these giant tomes that you have to study through and then all these peer reviewed journal articles that are, you know, kind of peripheral and learning about attachment was tough, but it was like, it was, it was like a training montage, you know, in a movie when they're like diving into text, <laughs> I'm imagining like, oh, it. I found it. And the, it, Lifting yeah, it is. And that's what it was like. <laughs> it, it was, that's, that's what learning attachment was like. And then training people on it and seeing the light bulb goes on in their head when they hear about it and when they get it and, and, and getting that feeling like that is amazing. And I love that. So yeah, it's, it, it is like teaching people that you can break gravity. It, it is like the matrix teaching Neo that there is no spoon. And that's, that's what yeah. when I teach people attachment. It feels like there is no spoon, man. And they got, they got to unlearn the spoon. <laughs> that's honestly, I, I mean, it makes so much sense in the context of what we just said of seeing beyond the beliefs that you have as a pretty mystical process, man. It's not the most, uh, almost like an initiation or something, but, uh, I don't know. Um, maybe a bit, bit beyond my pay grade at the moment, but, uh, thank you so much, Adam. Um, this is, and I really, I'll include obviously all the links and everything. Where's the best place for people to find you to get more of this wisdom and to, you know, sort themselves three places. out? Three, three places. If you like videos, short videos and information, check out my TikTok. It blew up in eight weeks from zero followers to 170,000. Now I'm up at almost 190,000. Like we're just growing, growing. So on TikTok, I'm at attachment bro. I'm also on Instagram at attachment Adam. There's a lot more visuals and reading over there. So if you like those materials and you can share them more easily with people or save them and have them as your background, I'm over on Instagram at attachment Adam. And number three, my website, adamlanesmith.com. I've got my attachment bootcamp course over there. I've got my books available. I've got coaching, my discord community, the attachment circle. I have everything available on my website. So those three places, I am all over the place. Find me. Let's talk. Fantastic. It'll all be in the description as well. Thank you so much for your time, Adam, and for all your work. Um, people really need it, so we really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me here.